This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Good afternoon, and welcome to the third episode of Sweet 212, a new series here on Resonance 104.4 FM that looks at the arts in their social, political and historical contexts, broadcasting on the third Monday of every month. Sometimes we'll hold panels to discuss a specific issue, as with our first show on the uses and limits of criticism, or the second on the cultural legacy of the Russian Revolution. Today, for the first time, I take a close look at the work of a particular figure whom I admire via an extended interview. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I have the pleasure of spending an hour with Chris Krause. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. For many of our listeners, Chris Krause will need no introduction. She is perhaps best known as the author of four novels, all of which blur the lines between fiction, art criticism and memoir. The first of which, I Love Dick, originally issued in 1997 via Semiotext, where she was an editor, slowly became a sleeper hit and was recently reissued in the UK by Serpent's Tale and turned into an Amazon Prime video series by Jill Soloway, who also made Transparent. Her other novels are Aliens and Anorexia, Torpor and Summer of Hate. She has also published three volumes of Criticism, often with an emphasis on art from Los Angeles, Video Green, LA Artland, and Where Art Belongs. She currently lives in Minnesota, and she's in the UK to promote her new book, Arthur Cathy Acker, a biography of the writer who, like her, explored the complexities of being a woman in male-dominated cultural circles and wrote unflinchingly about abjection, female sexuality, and BDSM relationships and dynamics. Chris and I recently spoke about this book at the London Review Bookshop and our conversation can be found online via the shop's Facebook and Twitter feeds. Like I Love Dick, the Acker book has been extensively discussed, so we won't focus on either of those here. Instead, Chris, I'd like to start by talking to you about your early career as an artist filmmaker, as you made eight works between 1983 and 1996. Yeah. So... Can I start by asking um, how you started working in this medium and maybe why you stopped? Well, I made my first film in 1982. It was called In Order to Pass. And I'd been studying acting at the time. And um, finally, my acting teacher, who I adored, suggested that this was really not going to work out for me as a career. (laughs) And I might want to think about making films. Um, she meant experimental films, you know, which were much more in the culture then. Um, and she suggested I watch Blow Up, uh, not Blow Up, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Wavelength by Michael Snow. Uh, yeah. That's a famous experimental yeah. film. So I went down to Anthology Film Archives and I watched it. And it kind of changed my life. I'd never, I wasn't familiar with structuralist filmmaking. And, um, was wildly exciting. So I said, okay, I'll make a film. And I started borrowing and renting Super 8 film equipment. And over about 
a year and some months, I made a film called Another Pass that was um, a dramatization of an essay about phenomenology that a philosopher friend of mine wrote about words and pictures. And really, it was about being homesick for New Zealand, where I had arrived from a couple of years ago. Um, and then I kept making films after that. I made seven or eight or nine films in that vein over about a decade, leading up to um, Gravity and Grace, a feature film, which is anyone who makes short films, their big dream is to make a feature. And that's going to change everything, you think. And you're going to suddenly find a way to become economically viable and support <laughs> yourself. But it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, I swore to make an never make another film again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find the economics of a film very interesting. I like you, I'm someone who's worked in film a little bit. I'd like to work in film more. Uh, but basically, there's a sort of disparity between the budgets of the films that I would like to make and the sort of likely level of interest that um, that they would inspire, uh, which has kind of put me off, really. I think a big problem with film is that, um, you know, you can write a novel or poetry or a play um, and... You can put it into the world and what happens to it happens to it. But if you write a screenplay and you can't find the finance to make it, then you can't do a lot with it. Um, that's always been something I found quite um, quite off-putting. Um, but, I mean, all the time you were working as a filmmaker, were you also wanting to, to write novels? No. No. Not okay. at all. Right. Um, so... So why did you you stop making film? It was unsustainable. I right. was absolutely drained and broke and heartbroken after Gravity and Grace. It had taken three and a half years. My partner and I had put all our money into it. I traveled all over the world getting kind of subsidies and free services, and nothing happened. There was no market. I mean, with a movie, um, it either hits big or it doesn't hit at all. There's no middle ground. And it's very different with a book, you know, maybe even more so then in the late 90s than now. But, I mean, with I Love Dick, it was not as if it was a failure in 1997. It was read and it seeped out slowly. You know, books had a longer shelf life. Maybe they still do, um, you know, so that nine months later somebody could pick up on it and it's a new thing for them. Uh, with the movie, it either gets distributed or it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to me um, in your novel Aliens and Anorexia, you talk a lot about the process of making Gravity and Grace um, and you, you really quite unflinchingly describe, I mean, the character describes herself as a failed filmmaker uh, and I wanted to talk to you about what it means to to fail as an artist um, I mean you've kind of addressed some of that by talking about the economics of filmmaking because as you've just kind of said um, there's a clearer kind of set of metrics for whether a film succeeds or fails and that's usually whether it recoups its cost at the very least uh, but I, I don't know would you would you like to talk a bit more about how it feels to have kind of failed in a certain field of, of creativity. Because, I mean, my, my own work in film has not been massively successful either. 
Well, I like to hyperbolize, Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to go on calling myself a failed filmmaker was very much in the spirit of like punk, uh, of, you know, queer, okay? You know, um, or using whatever the worst word is that people are going to use against you mm. and adopt it for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, so I didn't, you know, I never really thought the film was a failure in artistic terms. It was a failure in the terms that the world uses to measure the success of a film. It failed to be distributed. Yeah. Still, the film has been shown a lot more in the last five years than it ever was at the time. And I think if it was successful in conventional terms, that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with, um, with the sort of, as we've talked about, the sort of, seeping out of I Love Dick in particular I think people are going back to your film works um, for any of our listeners who want to see uh, kind of typically grainy and low res uh, versions of these films via the Ubu web website go to ubu.com U-B-U, uh, and you can find an archive of most of Chris's films there I'm not sure if they're all there but there's a good selection uh, Terrorists in Love In Order to Pass and various others um I know that in the um, one of your volumes of criticism, Video Green, you write quite a lot about film and sexuality and particularly BDSM. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping to have a look at that before I came in to record with you today, but I haven't had a chance to. So I wondered if you would like to kind of expand on the ideas there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Video Green was written in the years when I was just moving to L.A., and getting used to the city, the late 90s and early 2000s. And I was given an opportunity to write a quarterly art column for a magazine called Art Text, where I could write pretty much whatever I wanted. So, you know, I decided to do that bratty thing where you hardly write about the art. <laughs> you make it a personal diary, and at the very end, you say something about the art. And, you know, what I was doing, I was living alone for the first time, and I was discovering L.A., which was so different from New York. I mean, so liberating and so despairing at the same time, so spread out. Everyone in search of connections somehow. And um, because my own kind of relationship situation uh, was complicated at the time, and I wasn't looking for another full-time partner, but I still wanted to have sex, um, BDSM seemed like a way to have something that was less than a kind of terminal relationship leading to marriage or domestic life, but more than casual bar sex. And I just clicked to it right away. It was I thought it was wonderful. And it resonated with all the work that I'd done in the theater years ago. I loved the idea of people kind of acting behind these roles and masks. And so that really became the way that I met people. And uh, so a lot of times in that book, I would write about these different encounters in different parts of the city. Um, it was like this kind of grand guignol of masculinity and femininity. And at the time, I guess I was trying to become more of a public person. And I'd been very kind of frumpy and dowdy and shy and slope-shouldered. And um, so this kind of, you know, training as a submissive. <laughs> totally. It was my finishing school. <laughs> <laughs> And because it was so bracketed, you know, in the in the realm of play, it w I could accept it. I mean, I one of my favorite of your films, and you're going. To, I'm going to have to apologize to you, and you're going to have to remind me of the title because it slipped my mind. But the film you made about uh, Arto, 
Yeah. Um, remind me of the title. Well, there were two of them. There yeah. was Foolproof Illusion. That's the one. Um, and the way you sort of bring in some of these sort of BDSM power dynamics into into that film. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah, that was also just Sylvia's friends. He was very close friends with uh, Terence Sellers, who was a pro-dom. Uh, she was in another one of the films in How to Shoot a Crime, yeah. talking to Sylvia about her work, and she did a kind of guest appearance in that film. And that was, you know, also that was like the fashion of the 80s. You know, you turn on the TV and everybody's in kind of black leather and corsets. <laughs> Yeah, and politics at the time was very much a sort of process of dominance and submission and humiliation, I think, yeah. for, for lots of people. Um, that's really interesting. I'm going to read a short uh, passage about your work um, from a book that was issued recently by Mute Books called You Must Make Your Death Public. So um, this is from an essay uh, by the artist Linda Stupart called Against Critical Distance, Chris Kraus and the Empathetic Exchange of Objects. Uh, and she talks about the physical body being treated as object in your work, but also your sort of personhood, biography and history. Um, and the sort of life, personhood, material, self-becoming object um, Everything, uh, you know, body and mind become sort of material for a sort of confessional mode of working that sort of deconstructs the confessional as it goes. Um, I'm very interested in the sort of uh, mixture of sort of criticism, uh, drawing on personal history uh, in your work. And I don't know if we could talk about how that fe fed into your film work. Yeah, well, I mean, I was always kind of drawn to the film essay more than a dramatic narrative film, except for Gravity and Grace. I would say all the films I made before that were more like film essays in the spirit of, you know, mid-period Godard or Chris Marker. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it seemed that the film could construct an argument that was the, kind of the glamour and the beauty of it was that the intelligence was invisible, you know, it's like the editor was auteur and, you know, and the filmmaker is always the editor. I mean, that is that is the meaning occurs in the montage. You know, there's strands of material. There might be a voiceover or a text that appears somehow. There's the images. And it's always the kind of balance between meaning of word and image where the film really lives and happens and you make that happen in post-production so I found that really thrilling it was a way of appearing and disappearing at the same time and at the time I really wanted to be I, I, I really wanted to appear but I didn't know how to appear personally so it was a way of appearing kind of virtually yeah I mean I find that really interesting with with film there's something something about the mediation of the relationship with the viewer, but, you know, with physical images and sound and music uh, that I feel is very different to just working with, with words on a page. Um, and I, I find, as a, as a consequence, I've always found kind of people who have worked in textual forms, you know, poetry or prose, as well as, as, well as film, kind of particularly interesting. Um, I wondered if you, 
I think I already know the answer to this, but I wondered if you had any intention to work in film again, any desire to? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Well, because, I mean, you know, to write a book, you know exactly what you need to do. You need yourself. You need some time. You need yeah. a place to be. And that's it. Yeah. You know, you're not dependent on anyone else. With film, there's so many variables and you wait so long. Uh, so no, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm learning this the hard way at the moment. I've just written a, a short film script for my first uh, solo film. And um, there are two or three shots in there that I've kind of written and thought, yeah, I, I think they'll be really nice shots. They'll go really nicely with the words I've written in the script. And now I'm looking at these scripts and thinking, how on earth am I going to film these things in the time that I've got with the budget I've got? Right. And you have um, to rack up all these obligations to people who help you. Right? Yeah, completely. And, yeah. you know, yeah, pay them out of, yeah, you know, usually a kind of minimal budget. And yeah, yeah, yeah you're um, repaying these favours for the rest of your life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> completely. OK, well, I, I, I think that's um, that's a sort of a nice... Um, a nice way to sort of conclude talking about your film work. Uh, in 2011, uh, Real Fine Arts in Brooklyn presented a sort of exhibition of your, your films. And you wrote in an essay, These films have nothing to do with me now. Their exhibition comes too late to feel like a vindication. Nonetheless, it's a pleasure, an abstract affirmation of a practice I'm no longer involved in but will never recant. Uh, does that remain a sort of fair summary of your position yes I good think so. good um, so i'd like to move on now to um talk about your work with the publisher semiotext the common conception of semiotext is that it was something active in the kind of 80s and 90s uh that was run primarily by you and uh, sylvain latrange uh, as a figure who you've been quite closely associated with uh for a variety of reasons um and I know that now semiotext is much more you and Hedy L. Colty. Yeah. Um, I mean, the work you did with the Native Agent series with semiotext is particularly interesting, I think. Uh, I think the first publication in that series was Cookie Muller. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Who's um, currently the subject of a really interesting exhibition at Studio Voltaire in Clapham for our listeners, um, Putty's Pudding, which is the... Uh, work she made with her partner, uh, Vittorio Scapati, both of whom, when they were dying of um, complications from AIDS in the late 80s, um, they're both in hospital. Scapati was no longer able to speak. Uh, his lungs had collapsed, and so they communicated by Scapati, who was a political illustrator, cartoonist, uh, drawing and cookie annotating the drawings and mm. they're being shown together i think for the first time in the uk um and actually the the short film that i mentioned is is tying in with with that work uh my short film that is um so yeah i think cookie was the the first person you published and you've also published a lot of very interesting work by kind of figures from the queer underground in the u.s like penny arcade bruce benderson david boy uh, bob flanagan uh, a number of very interesting French works like Michel Bernstein, um, Catherine Breyer, even Pierre Guillotin, uh, and more recently people like Masha Tapitsin, the Bernadette Corporation, uh, Lynn Tillman, 
Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit more about where Semiotext is now and the work that you and Hedy O'Colty are doing there. Yeah, I mean, I would really say it's primarily Hedy's work at this mm. point. He's the only one of us who works full time for, for, for Semiotext. Um, he joined us around 2003, 2004, at first as a designer, but it was quickly clear that he had the perfect skill set to do pretty much everything. Um, he's French-Moroccan. He studied in France. He's certainly familiar with the French theory work that Sylvain was publishing in the 80s. Um, but he's also an artist and writer and has an interest in, um, well, the queer material that you talked about. Um, he, he brought in a whole strand of material, uh, text that had fallen out of print or never appeared in English from the French gay underground of the 70s. And this kind of fell into the moment of gay marriage and became a way of speaking to assimilation without directly bashing it, you know, a reminder that there was another tradition of living differently that went along with queerness. So he published works by Tony Duvere and Grisolitas Real and many other people. Um, but there's been a decision. You know, we discuss from time to time whether we should get bigger. Um, and the answer always comes back, no, we shouldn't, you know. Um, we have never used economics as a criteria as to whether or not we're going to publish a book. If it feels truly important to one of us, we will do it, even if it only sells 300 copies at the time. Um, and it works very much through friendships and generosity and synchronicity and sometimes feeling that things need to come out that have been overlooked. We did a whole strand of books like the David Wanarovitz book and the Penny Arcade book of work that had been done, you know, 15 years before that we thought hadn't been exposed mm. enough, hadn't circulated enough. So, I mean, it's a real mission. I, I think it's the most highly curated list that I know of. And, you know, the work feels deeply important to us. And beyond the three of us, there's, you know, several other people, Robert Dewhurst, Nura Waddell, um, Jeanique Vigier, who are working with us extensively. And then beyond that, there's all the people that kind of participate and support in our work. It really has become like a community, an expanded community of people. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting what you say about making a decision not to kind of try and expand kind of consciously. I mean, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but one of the things that most interests me about writing in particular is I think there is a way in which you you write a text or you publish it and it kind of goes out into the world and then you kind of have to relinquish control of it. Um, and as we discussed, it may not... Uh, reach an audience you were hoping for it may not have the kind of effects you were hoping for but on the other hand often quite strange things can happen and the text can reach a far bigger audience than you anticipate and I'm particularly thinking of probably the funniest example of this with semi-text which was when you published um, 
the coming insurrection by the Invisible Committee, a sort of French, sort of post-situationist, sort of post-anarchist uh, radical left group. And this got picked up by the Fox News host, Glenn Beck, um, who was absolutely livid about it. And there's this sort of very kind of the end is nigh uh, Fox News segment where he's holding up the book and yelling, it's coming, people, um, which I really recommend you watch. I think he covered the book twice. And it had quite an effect on the book sales, didn't it? Yeah, yes, it was a bestseller. I think it was our bestseller ever by any industry standards. It was a huge bestseller. Three times over the summer, he held up the book on TV and said, this is the most evil book in America. <laughs> and then you looked at the Amazon page for the book. You know, people who have bought this book also bought Newt Gingrich. Uh, Sarah Palin, <laughs> Dick Cheney. <laughs> Have you thought about trying to get Dick Cheney and Sarah Palin and the Invisible Committee together? Because <laughs> uh, I would watch that. Um, and we've we've gone on to do two more works by them. Yes, yes. There was one quite recently, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, just as a, a quick aside, because it makes me laugh. Um, have you seen Glenn Beck now? Um, he's kind of woke. Glenn Beck, yeah, you see did. him in, I know, yeah. I know, it's changed. It's yeah, changed. it's very strange, isn't it? You know, he's talking about how Barack Obama was like a good thing and kind of very anti-Trump and asking liberals if they like his lattes. It's very odd, but um, we do live in uh, in very strange times, I think, and it sort of feels that culturally everything is kind of in flux and anything could happen. Um, and, um, and, you know, Glenn Beck can go from being a sort of anti-promoter for the Invisible Committee to to being a kind of woke um, opponent of Donald Trump. It's it's a strange time, for sure. Uh, do you think the Invisible Committee would have reached such an audience without Glenn Beck? Uh, <laughs> would it, no, it wouldn't have reached as large an audience. I mean, it became a sensation. And, you know, that could happen, right? There's the book and the story of the book, and then people write it, the story of the story of the book, and it just kind of metastasizes like that. Um, but we, you know... We've done two more books by them, and we do that. I mean, once we start to publish someone, we tend to stay with that person so long as they want to stay with us. Yeah. And that's very unusual now in publishing. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is. Um, that's that's certainly been true for me, and a lot of my friends have, have published with lots of different people. Uh, and, yeah, there's an awful lot to be said for making a publisher a kind of home and building up those sorts of relationships over time um this all leads me on quite nicely to talking about i love dick and uh as i said in the introduction i don't want to kind of reprise uh what the the novel itself is about or the circumstances in which it was written or you know the sort of ethical issues around writing from real life in that way because i think you've you've covered that an awful lot uh and what i'm kind of interested in discussing with regards to to that book and your career in in literature in particular as a whole is kind of how you feel about the level of mainstream recognition that's come with it uh you know especially in the last kind of five or six years uh the book has found a huge readership particularly here in the uk um the event that we did together at the London Review Bookshop in September sold out in about 10 minutes uh, and had about 5,000 people watching on a live stream. I um, think it's because we were a good duo. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, 
but the obviously um i love dick and then your other novels have had big reissues in the uk uh, and of course it's been turned into the tv series jill soloway that i mentioned earlier so i think it's fair to say the book has been um has been a real kind of sleeper hit like you said it reached an audience at the time but it's it's gradually found a really big audience uh and i wondered if you had any reflections on kind of why that is and why it's happened now um well i mean i love dick started its second life began in 2006 when hetty decided to republish it you know that's already what you know nine years after the fact when it first came out um and it fell into this moment when a lot of brilliant younger women were keeping blogs, and a lot of people were reading these blogs. And um, they all went on to become published writers, like Sheila Hetty, Emily Gould, Jackie Wang, Ariana Raines, Kate Sambrano, maybe. Yeah, Kate yeah. Sambrano, definitely. Five of them, and they all wrote about my work, mm. and I think especially about I Love Dick. And they had a they had big big followings, so the book started to be read you know, by their friends and by their audiences. And from there, it just moved mainstream a lot quicker than it would have 10 years before, say, with the zine movement. Of course, yeah. You know? Okay, yeah, so the technological side of that's really interesting. Um, I hadn't really thought of it like that. Um, I'm not sure I can think of that many other writers whose works have had that sort of afterlife due to due to the internet. Um yeah. I feel like there must be some, but I guess because you were still working and still writing at that point as well, so people could kind of rediscover I Love Dick, but they could also find their way to, uh, was it Torpor came out in 2006? Right, right. In fact, I think the real reason that Hattie brought out I Love Dick was because we were so disappointed by the reception of Torpor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought that was like my real breakthrough novel. And in fact, if I could have published that with a commercial publisher at the time, mm. I would have. And I tried, but it didn't work out. I did it with semi-text. It was, you know, it didn't circulate that far. It didn't get very much coverage. I was heartbroken. I think Cody was too. And then he had the idea, oh, well, we'll bring out I Love Dick again. Sure. Um, and I mean, Torpor has now been reissued here by Serpent's Tale as well. Uh, in fact, I finished reading it last week. Um, have you found your other books uh, achieving a similar sort of afterlife? Yeah, I mean, never to the extent of I Love Dick, because nobody's going to take a selfie with Torpor. Right. <laughs> a well, big, you say that. Yeah. A big part of the success of I Love Dick was like people taking these photos of yeah. themselves and their dogs and their pets, <laughs> reading it in different situations and keying the title onto cars. And, you know, um, nothing's going to come close to that. But definitely going around now, even with the new book, a lot of people at the signings have come up with copies of Torpor yeah. and have talked about reading it and said that it was important to them. And that is beyond gratifying you know that like you know 2005 the book comes out nothing happens 12 years later people are reading it exactly as i wished at the time so it's it's such a delayed gratification yeah but um, like you say you know the book goes out in the world and you just don't know what's going to happen yeah absolutely um I just want to share a quick anecdote about uh the sort of selfie culture with uh with i love dick um 
the book actually got me into trouble at work. Uh, I was working for uh, St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington in London when I read the book three years ago. And uh, I went out for one of my kind of many extended lunch breaks. And I just left the book face up on the table uh, on my desk and came back to find my boss holding it up and saying, Juliet, what's this? <laughs> uh, and I had to try and explain that the book wasn't porn and then had to uh, had to try and explain the sort of auto-fictional approach of I love dick and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that it was serious literature and not not something obscene uh, but nonetheless I probably should have thought a little bit harder about just like leaving it lying around the office but anyway um, I just thought I'd uh, I'd want to share that with you um, I mean with I love dick in particular did you did you ever imagine the book becoming that popular no never and, you know, frankly, that was never my dream, you know, to be yeah. in airline magazines or to have <laughs> a TV show with a character with my name. None of these were things that I aspired to, especially. All I really wanted was that my books be taken seriously as literature. Yeah. When the book came out, it was treated by serious people as if it were a dirty joke. And yeah. I was really hurt and diminished by that. Mm. So I just wanted the book to be taken seriously. And I, I think it's definitely achieved that. Um, yeah, finally. Yeah, these these things can can really take time. I mean, especially as as I love Dick is such a personal work. Uh, have you found this level of popularity difficult to cope with? Sorry. Uh, for for such a per especially as I love Dick is such a personal work. Have you found this level of readership difficult to cope with? Oh, um, do you mean the people who are named in the book? More the amount that people know about your life. Oh, and yeah, your, I see what you mean. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, it's strange. It's strange. And it definitely has affected the reception of my other work. Um, because, you know, because I, I make myself a named character in the book, people think they know who Chris Krause is. And they want that person to remain consistent <laughs> with their idea, yeah. you know, which exists only between the covers of I Love Dick. But now that it's a TV show, even more so, mm. you know, I found the reception to the Acker book, you know, a literary biography actually fell into the same groove there. Um, people were really upset in some of the reviews that I didn't, quote, disclose the fact that Silvere, who appears in the book as a person in Acker's life, that I didn't talk about the fact that Silvere and I were also a couple. I, I never thought that had anything to do with my critical reading of Acker's work. But because the TV show aired so recently, mm. you know, Chris and Silvera are this thing in their minds, and they can't not help but import that over. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, any cultural figure, you will get audience having sort of preconceptions about you and your life that you can't really control. And some of them are kind of weird. Some of them are funny. Some of them are annoying. Um, some of them are infuriating. Uh, but I guess for someone who's written a lot of works that are quite explicitly drawing on your own life or have a character called Chris Krause, uh, that that sort of set of circumstances must really be amplified. Uh, and quite often, I imagine you would have people kind of encountering you and finding you to not be what they expected or hoped for. And maybe that sort of disappointment feeding into their response to your work. Yeah, yeah. But it's true. I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure you experienced that with trans, yeah. too. Um, with my book, Trans, a memoir. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it speaks to people 
on such a personal level, right? And they really internalize it, and they feel that they, I mean, they feel that there's been a dialogue with you. Yeah. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's an opening. That's a way that a book can be an opening, not just between the writer and the reader, but between a reader and other readers of the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with um, with Trans a Memoir, for any listeners who aren't familiar with it, was a um, a book about the sort of process of gender reassignment, but also about the process of writing about gender reassignment. It got quite kind of meta. Um, you know, I found it very strange that I'm constantly meeting people now who know loads about my life and I don't know who they are. Um, and a lot of details about my life that I included precisely because they were quite banal or because they failed. You know, people who know about the punk band I was in in Brighton in 2003. You know, we did gigs to like 12 people and half of them would leave halfway through. Like we had a policy of not rehearsing for gigs. Right. Uh, and now we might have to get back together or something. I don't know, but um, hopefully not. Did um, you find that your book created a community of readers? Yeah, I mean, because it was always going to be read by a lot of people in the trans community or a lot of people who saw themselves as like sympathetic towards the trans community, allies of the trans community. Yeah, I think it did. Um I mean, it's appearing on like queer studies, reading lists and things. Uh, so university communities, but also I think even more than communities, there's there's been a really nice series of kind of one to one interactions with people. You know, um, it, quite often I will have people come up to me at an event or send me an email just to say, look, I read this book and it really helped. Or yeah. it will come to me secondhand, somebody who's maybe... Uh, I'm just not in touch with or they're nervous or something. But, you know, someone will say to me, oh, my friend is transitioning or know someone who's transitioning and read your book. And it was it was really helpful. So, yeah, I mean, that's incredibly rewarding. Um, Do you think that all literature is self-help literature? <laughs> um, yeah. Only if the aim a lot of the time is to destroy yourself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. Um, I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time, I, I read an awful lot of modernist and sort of avant-garde fiction. So, you know, Wyndham Lewis or Franz Kafka and um, I don't know what it is they're helping me to do exactly. Well, no, I mean, no, I mean, I joke. But for example, I remember reading um, The Outsider by Camus as a sixth form student. So I was like 16, 17. And it really kind of just, it was incredible because obviously it's such a bleak book and most people would tell you it's depressing. Uh, but it kind of articulated the world in these sort of simple but very deep and intelligent terms. And I thought, oh, other people feel the same way about the world as I do. So I never thought I would nominate The Outsider as a self-help book, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> George W. Bush's favourite book as well, apparently. So it's nice that we've got something in common. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe you could look at all literature like that. I don't know. I mean, any good piece of literature will help you kind of understand the world. Right, um, and to feel less alone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think a great thing, I mean, among the community of readers of I Love Dick is this feeling that you don't have to be ashamed of, quote, reading like a girl, yeah. you know, that people can kind of come out in their, I don't know, their love of reading as something that is a really intimate and personal thing. 
Do you think yeah, it's so reached, in that way it is a self help? Has it reached a predominantly female audience? Do you think? Yeah. The, this this new audience for I Love Dick is it mainly women? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, that uh, leads me on to uh, a sort of wider point I wanted to pick up from there. Um, do you think I Love Dick has contributed to a rise of um, what's being called auto fiction? Now, just to explain for listeners, obviously there is a very long tradition of fiction uh, drawing from an author's life that you know, goes back hundreds of years. Uh, so this, this sort of genre of autofiction, what I'm talking about is a sort of a type of work that I feel has been quite prevalent over the last kind of decade or two, in which the name of the uh, author is the same as the name of the protagonist. So I'm thinking about works like I Love Dick. I'm thinking about Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be? Uh, a novel like Self-Portrait Abroad um, by the, the wonderful French-Belgian author Jean-Philippe Toussaint. I'm a huge fan of his work. Or the Spurious Trilogy by uh, Lars Eyer, which I may well come back to talk about in a minute because I'm, I'm a huge fan of those as well. So these kind of works that use the name of the author as the name of the protagonist, but are also kind of branded as novels. And I guess there's a kind of a game for the reader uh, on some level where you are kind of thinking about which things actually happen to the author and which things are invented. Um, I mean, this was something I would have liked to have done with Trans Memoir. But because the kind of material I was writing about, you know, to do with like social, social institutional transphobia, mental health problems, a lot of like very serious subjects. And it didn't really feel appropriate to kind of have a central character called Juliet Jakes and ask the audience to guess, you know, whether or not I actually got beaten up by somebody or thrown off a medical process or whatever. That didn't feel appropriate. But you know, I was a huge admirer of, of your work, of Sheila Hetty's work, of Jean-Philippe Toussaint's work. Um, so I wondered if we could maybe talk about this kind of idea of autofiction, how you feel about it. Yeah, most of, the, most of the fiction that I like, that I have any interest in, could be described as autofiction. I mean, from Flaubert, Sentimental Education, to almost all of Roberto Bolaño's work, to the American writer Gary Indiana's work, um, it's. I almost think of you know fiction, fiction with with made up plots and characters is really genre fiction. You know the kind of airport novel that you know you only really <laughs> read if nothing else is available. Um, Holbeck. I mean, all my favorite writers. There's, and the recent people that you mentioned, like Sheila Huddy, Emily Gould, Lynn Tillman's work. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't even understand what criticism is talking about when they make it seem as if it's such a subcategory. To me, it's like the other thing is more a subcategory, you know, romance, crime, historical fiction, and the rest of it, literary fiction almost necessarily is autofiction. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of the, um, the authors I like um, just starting really from the post-war period onwards, mm. uh, take this approach. I'm thinking of um, Natalie Sarraut, the great French nouveau roman author, Nobel Prize for Literature winner. Um, actually, I think that's correct. Maybe it isn't. Uh, but anyway, her essay, The Age of Suspicion, 
published in the early 60s, where she talks about readers possibly believed created characters in the 19th century, but but not by not by the time she was writing. Uh, and that readers would be aware that characters were always just kind of parts of an author's consciousness. Um, but don't you think the difference, though, has to do with the scope of the novel? You know, if we're talking about earlier 18th and century, 19th century fiction, it's more of uh, it's more of an episodic structure. Yeah. And so the presence of the author is as the narrator. You get to know the narrator very yeah. well. Yeah. You know, the narrator's head is the head that you're living in. And the narrator is just telling the story of all these different characters across the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that gives the novel this incredible breadth, you know. Yeah, that's it becomes sort of, journalistic in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, some of these novels were yeah. published as episodes in newspapers. I mean, I'm halfway through um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens at the moment, which is an excellent case in point, something that was, was published periodically. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in the same way that we'd follow like a soap opera now or something um i found that really interesting i mean a lot of the the writers that are closest to my heart were people who took the kind of ideas that natalie sarot or many others have theorized uh, and were quite explicit about that being their process i'm thinking of um an english writer that i wrote about um called Rainer Heppenstall, who published a book called The Connecting Door in the early 60s. He was very close to Sorot and Rob Grier and Claude Simon, other people in that group, Marguerite Durat. And The Connecting Door is kind of written across three different time periods. And the three characters in the, the three different time periods are all kind of um, versions of the author at sort of different points interacting with each other in these quite strange ways. I'm also thinking about someone like um, B.S. Johnson, Brian Stanley Johnson, the um, wonderful British filmmaker and novelist and playwright, poet, um, who was around in the sort of 60s and early 70s, who famously insisted that telling stories is telling lies and felt that novels should mm. only be drawn from the author's own life. Yeah. But very strange things started happening to him because, you know, he was quite young when he became known as a writer. He's in his early 30s. Not that much had happened to him. And so after a couple of novels, he's kind of taken the stories from his own life. And so he has to start kind of contriving experiences in order to write about them. And then you get into... There's a book called Trawl where he... um he was on a shipping trawler and, you know, it's a sort of stream of consciousness novel where he trawls up memories as the shipping trawler you know, trawls up fish. Mm. Uh, but he, you know, he wrote to a shipping trawler and said, look, can I come on a trip with you to gather material for my novel? And the people <laughs> on the, the trawler called him the pleasure tripper. Uh, and, you know, he was a kind of outsider throughout. So, you know, is that a kind of genuine experience or not? I think ethically... It gets very strange, and maybe that's no different to this also fictional approach where you're you're inventing some things and and yeah, others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite writers, um, who was important, especially when I was starting writing, was Christopher Isherwood. Oh, yeah. And if you read all of his work, especially after he became a practicing Hindu, I guess, um, he took the same material that he'd written about in a fictionalized way early in his life, and he rewrote it towards a point of greater truth. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So and he took the material beautiful. from Goodbye to Berlin 
Yeah, yeah. And I forget what the... Yeah, other early novels, yeah. he went back and he retold the same material. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And, and also from, you know, coming out as a gay man, which he hadn't yeah. before moving to California. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I find that absolutely fascinating, this process of rewriting material as fiction and nonfiction. Um I mean, I don't know if that's something you've, you feel you've done as well. Is there sort of crossover between your novels and your essays? Do you sort of see them as, as sort of conceptually part of the same project? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't go back. You know, there's some writers that go back to the same incidents over and over again. Mm. And I've never done that. Um, but definitely those, th you know, those kind of there's a bleed between what I consider an essay and what I consider fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lots of parts of particularly Aliens and Anorexia and I Love Dick, um, yeah. you know, a kind of Iraq criticism and they're kind of integrated into a novel, um, you know, besides the material that is fictional and besides the material that may or may not be. Uh, yeah, I find that bleeding of stars really interesting. One of the things that makes an essay most alive, I think, is when the writer brings a real time element to it so that that means that the reader is kind of thinking through these subjects over time together with the writer. Yeah, I mean, are there any uh, examples of that that you've, you've been particularly taken with? Because to think about something also kind of falls into a narrative arc, don't you think? Yeah, you how know, can If it you're not? really studying something and living with it for a while, it becomes its own journey. Yeah, and I think it has to. I mean, I always say that with regards to my own writing... I've no interest in writing about things where I already know what I think. Yeah. I don't want to go into an essay or a short story. You know, it's kind of like drilling, really, or mining. You know, you, you set up somewhere where you think there might be something of interest to you. And you may find that there's not. You may do lots of kind of work and <laughs> right. find you don't find anything you want to. But you, you start that process with a good idea of what you want to to find, but not what exactly it is that you will find. Um, and that's when I think writing and thinking things through is the most kind of exciting, when it feels like an element of risk. Um, you know, when you, you might find yourself taking up intellectual positions that you didn't expect to, or you might even be a little bit appalled by. And there's been a few times where I've been writing something and I suddenly realised the sort of political implications of what I'm writing. I think, oh, my God, do I think that? <laughs> <laughs> but but that that gives an element of risk to the writer and so to the reader. I mean, with, with I Love Dick, I think a lot of the the popularity of, of, of that book uh, is the sort of extraordinary element of risk in yeah. it. Um, and surprise. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like the writer's kind of walking a tightrope and, yeah. uh, you know, might fall off at any moment. Um, and, you know, why else would you watch someone walk a tightrope if they're not going to fall off? It's not interesting. <laughs> well, there's no possibility of them falling off. Right. OK, so we've got 10 minutes left. You're listening to Sweet 212 here on um, Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest radio station. And um, this is actually our first pre-recorded show with... Uh, with the novelist and essayist and filmmaker Chris Krauss. So if you're listening to us in the future, uh, I hope you've been enjoying the show. Um, maybe then uh, we've actually covered a lot of what I wanted to cover, uh, but we're lucky enough to to have 10 minutes left. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the Kathy Acker book sure. and the reception to it. Um, 
I mean, as I said, it's something we talked about in our conversation at the London Review Bookshop, which you can find online. But you had some particularly interesting reflections on the kind of gendered nature of literary autobiography. I think this sort of ties in with a lot of what you write about and I Love Dick as well. Um, but you talked a lot about uh, this kind of tradition of male American writers kind of writing these sort of quite almost Oedipal biographies of other male American writers half a generation older than them, where they kind of kill the father. Um, and that these are read in a certain way. And... Um, you know, almost like a rite of passage for, you know, the great American author who is like a 30-something male who thinks he's the first person to have depression. Um, and the women writing about women is received in a very different way. Obviously, you've talked about the um, the assumptions that you knew Kathy Acker and had some sort of personal score with her and, you know, that not being the case, that you weren't, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, um, you know, they go to the trouble of writing an entire biography, but there's definitely the tradition of like a long essay yeah. in which a young and upcoming male writer will settle accounts with uh, a predecessor, somebody half a generation or a generation before him, you know, and both celebrate and admit their debt to the work, but in some way they need to take it down to make a space for themselves. You know, that's been done over and over again. Um, if a woman discusses the work of another woman writer, it seems that if it's anything less than 100% hagiographic and favorable, she's got to be jealous. You know, it's personalized and trivialized to this enormous degree. Um, that still surprises and shocks me. Yeah, you know, people. There were. I mean, a lot of people have written wonderful things about the book, but the the, the people who don't like the book um, like it on the grounds of like she didn't like her enough to write her biography. <laughs> Since when do you have to like someone? Well, yeah, to mean, write about their work. I'm sure the the Acker book went through many iterations. Um, I tried to write a biography of somebody uh, nearly ten years ago now, and that somebody was the um, the football player uh, Justin Fashionu, who died at the age of thirty six or thirty seven um, by his own hand under suspicion of sexual assault. And he was an incredibly complicated character. You know, he'd grown up in care. Um, and then fostered. Uh, he had to deal with an awful lot of racism, both before and during his football career. He had severe mental health problems throughout his life, I think, largely to do with his background. Family background was very difficult. Um, dealt with an incredible level of fame from a very young age. Um, very bad injuries that stopped him fulfilling his potential as well. Uh, converted to evangelical Christianity. So there's an awful lot going on in his life. And the first draft of the proposal that I did, I went in kind of feeling that he was kind of a hero who'd been treated very unfairly and, um, you know, somebody I really, really kind of liked um, and admired and you know, felt was a kind of martyr. And so that was the approach I went in the first time round. And I spoke to more and more people about his life and when I did the second draft, I sort of didn't like him anywhere nearly so much. And I'd read quite a lot of like right wing articles about him um, uh, that kind of affected my 
perception of him. Um, you know, I found out that he uh, urged people to vote conservative, which is always a big turnoff for me. Um, and then by the time I did the third draft, you know, it was more a matter of like, you know, do I empathise with him rather than do I like him? That's the great thing. If you yeah. don't overly like someone, if you bring out their bad qualities... The bad qualities don't exist in a vacuum, exactly. and it leads you to look further towards what created those bad qualities. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Fashion News' case, it was the sort of extraordinary pressures he was working under, yeah. and I ended up coming to see him as, you know, a sort of interesting and intelligent person who just lived in a world that was, like, too big and too complicated for him and actually just wasn't ready for him either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe that's the case with Kathy Acker as well. Um yeah, well, people better get ready now. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, <laughs> all her work is being republished. I your Acker feels quite thing. kind of a contemporary figure. She doesn't feel like somebody from the sort of seventies and eighties so much. It's true. Great. Well, we've 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 got just a few minutes left, so um, maybe I could could just ask you um, if there's anything you plan to work on next. Yeah, I want to write another novel. Um, Probably something very simple. Right. I don't know what form it will take, but I very consciously stayed off anything to do with my family. Yeah. My parents, uh, childhood, family background when I was writing the trilogy that was so autobiographical. Um, And I think I want to write something along those lines now. Right. Right. Okay. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because... Often that's the first thing that a novelist writes is something dealing with their their kind of youth and their it's background. That's true. But I think maybe people people coming from more of a middle, you know, a lower middle class or working class background mm. feel more protective of their families. Mm. And I that was what stopped me. It's like, oh, my poor parents. I'm not going to do this to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I mean, had some very US, awkward conversations. In the US, you know, definitely um, the middle class thing is, you know, the upper middle class person comes out with rage and hatred <laughs> against their parents, you know, from the get go. Yeah, I mean, I had to write about my parents in Trans Memoir and um, it came out okay in the end, but I found it very, very difficult and I didn't really want to do it. Right, But of course, right. there was no way I could not do it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, we've got just two minutes left, so um, I think um, we will uh, we will bring the show to to a conclusion. Chris, it's been a great joy to um, to have you in the studio and to talk with you at the London Review Bookshop and here. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about this next novel. Um, Obviously, readers, uh, listeners even, well, I mean, hopefully there'll be readers as well, but listeners can, um, you know, find all of all of your novels uh, either through Semiotext or through Serpent's Tale here in the UK. As I said, you can find uh, Chris's films via UbuWeb um, and uh, Chris's Chris's essays are available as well via, via Semiotext. Um I've been Juliet Jakes, and this has been Sweet 212. Uh, We'll be back in November. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.